Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Quite often I ask authors to read the very opening words of their book, but I'm going to ask Kari Kaplan to read the very last words, and not even from her book, but these are from the acknowledgement at the very end. Kari, welcome. Thank you, Jan. So I'll start at the very be- very the ending. Very end. <laughs> so this is from um, my book, which is called What Kitty Did Next?, And the last paragraph in the acknowledgements is this. Lastly, my heartfelt thanks to Jane Austen, who could not have imagined that her novels would have delighted and inspired, and continue to delight and inspire, millions of people all around the globe. Without her, this book could not have been written. She is incomparable, of course, and this novel a mere homage. I only hope that were she able to read it, she would not be too vexed at this trespass into her world. Yes. Well, for those that know Pride and Prejudice, it starts with Mrs. Bennett having five daughters and, well, David, you know what she wants for them, don't you? Marriage. Absolutely. And at the end of Pride and Prejudice, we have three of them married, Mrs. Bingley, Mrs. Darcy and Mrs. Wickham. Mrs. Wickham. So, Carrie Cabling, your book, where does it carry on from? Well, it's Kitty's story. I always felt a bit sorry for Kitty because all she does in Pride and Prejudice is cough or cry or get moaned about. <laughs> and I started thinking about the dynamics of the family and how there were five daughters and how three of them got all the attention and the other two didn't. And so um, it all came about because I was complaining to a friend that I didn't like the casting of one of the Kitty characters in the, well, it's actually the BBC TV series and... Being a very good friend, she turned around and said, well, why don't you do one yourself? Yes, right. A different (laughs) history, which is really, really good. So uh, there was Catherine, or Kitty, in the studios, Mary, who both knew the importance of marriage and that it was drummed into them by their mother. And But Kitty, when she, her own self-esteem, this is a quote from the book, when she entered an an assembly room, she did not command attention. This was more to do with a lack of confidence in herself and, of course, a lack of fortune. So true. There's also been a bit of embarrassment in the um, Bennett household with the elopement of um, Lydia. Remember that one, listeners? Oh, with that very handsome Mr Wickham. And Mr Bennett, the father, has reduced social outgoings and required two hours of study each day by the remaining two daughters. So what do you do in a day? Well, Kitty wrote letters, didn't she? They wrote letters. They did work by which they meant in those days needlework. Personally, I can't think of Anything less enthralling than to spend my days doing needlework. But Kitty um, found that there were letters that she wrote that she never sent. She started that writing journey. Yes, because what happened in my mind was that, first of all, she was very lonely. She'd lost her best friend in Lydia, who'd just really sort of sucked her into her own vortex and spat her out again. Mm. And um, she was on a bit of a tight leash, as you've just mentioned, And she knew she had to find a husband, but the way I've started this book is that 
she's rather disillusioned. I mean, everybody thought Wickham was a good guy until he turned out to be a bad guy. So how do you see through that? And, of course, she's constantly being nagged by her mother to find a husband and at the same time she lives in a very small community. So how is she going to find one? So there's an and opportunity for her to go to London with her big sister, Jane. And this encourages new interest in art and opera and even what's happening in the world. She starts to read the newspaper and starts researching things like uh, West Indies and slavery and starts reading different books like um, the uh, Mary uh, Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women, where were, and she questions, were wives slaves or friends of man? And she just I cannot believe that, you know, Mrs Bennett, her mother, would even think of anything like this. <laughs> no, well, that's true. And, and also, I, I just want to say, Kitty does this very covertly, but she isn't a confident person at this stage. And she's under Jane and Bingley's wing, and I've made Bingley into a sort of mentor for her. Mm. So she basically grabs the newspaper when, he's, when she's heard him speaking about something that she doesn't understand. And she goes back to it and tries to find out so that she doesn't appear to be too stupid. Yeah, and she sort of developed her own musings, as she calls them. <laughs> Little bits of writing that she's doing, because she's observant. She's observant rather than um, than extrovert at this stage of the novel, certainly. And so she begins to see through people a little yes. more clearly. But you have her also reading Harry uh, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, and you didn't tell us about her reaction to that book. <laughs> mm. back, back from sex to romance. Um, those who know um, Pride and Prejudice would have to remember Mr Collins, Reverend Collins. Ah, oh, well, Catherine or Kitty, right from the beginning, knew she'd never wanted to marry a vicar. She vowed she'd never marry one. And along comes Henry Adams. Well, he's not a vicar. There's certainly an attraction. But what's the problem with Henry Adams? He hasn't got any money. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a lot of skill. He's a very talented musician and she thinks he's terribly handsome. And he's been to Oxford, but only as a commoner, not even a gentleman commoner. I know this was a surprise to me when I was doing the research that even Oxford was so... um, so very ranked in terms of its class and there was one person below a commoner and that was a servitor but basically they were the people that had been sent there by somebody else's graces and they certainly weren't they certainly weren't important people yeah and she knows that she has to oh, because she's been told by big sister lizzie that she has to mix prudence with passion. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but there was a man who uh, was quite interested in her, Sir Edward Quincy. But there was a problem with him too. Well, there's a problem with most of them, really, Jan, isn't there? <laughs> but I think age was a problem with him. Exactly. I think if Kitty had been a different personality and a more aver- um, a greedier person, then she could have set her sights at this particular gentleman. But... She really is still finding her way in the world and that's what I wanted to give her. I wanted to give her a life outside Longbourn where she could actually become her own person. Sir Edward Quincy had two very uh, desirable nephews who escorted uh, Kitty and Georgina around London. Now, Georgina, remind us who she was from um, Pride and Prejudice. Georgina is Darcy's sister. Ah, yeah. She is introduced to us 
In the first instance, if I recall, um, when it comes out that Wickham, who is now married to Lydia, Wickham tried to seduce Georgiana yes. because she was worth about £30,000 a year, which was a veritable fortune in those days. Oh, I'm, I'm saying Georgina and you're saying Georgiana. I do. Oh, the jury's out, please. <laughs> I think I say both. <laughs> well, if uh, Georgiana is in London, that means that Elizabeth and Darcy are also there too. And uh, he, uh, Darcy had to let known that if, quote, if anyone should anyone cut Elizabeth, they would henceforth be cut by him. Oh, look, just a little bit from page 81. It's just a short paragraph, but it gives you that sense of how, how Elizabeth Bennett or now Elizabeth Darcy, quote, how she organises herself meeting earls and lords. OK. In a very short space of time, Mrs Darcy had had the pleasure of meeting some of the finest and most fastidiously fashionable ladies that London could offer and had borne their scrutiny with bemused tolerance, properly disguised as elegant attention. Elegant attention, yes. <laughs> oh, look, she does it well, she does it well. Well, uh, when Elizabeth and Darcy go back to Pemberley, this beautiful estate that you know we only really hear about in Pride and Pre- Prejudice, uh, Georgiana asks Kitty to come along too as her new friend. Kitty so, is over the moon. Oh, yes. So there's more parties and a great ball planned. But the spanner in the works is Lydia. As ever. Fight <laughs> herself. And it's at the centre of an eruption which causes Kitty to leave Pemberley. How about that page from 259? And I'm asking Carrie Kavlin to read from her book, What Kitty Did Next. Oh, yes, of course. Kitty made her way downstairs for the last time. As it would be neither right nor appropriate for any relation of Mrs Fitzwilliam Darcy to make such a long journey unaccompanied, a small escort of servants had been drafted to ensure Kitty's comfort and security. These would be her sole companions on the way to Hertfordshire. With her trunks aboard, she was ready to leave. If she had harboured hopes for some last-minute reprieve, that Freddy Fanshawe might at any moment gallop into view and take responsibility, absolving her of her perceived crimes, that her friend Georgiana would relent and come down to wave her goodbye, then she was disappointed. Only Elizabeth emerged from the house to perform that ritual, and it was done perfunctorily. Oh, yes, so she was accused of all these things, but we can't tell you why or what for. But, ah, so there's gambling debts that come into it. There's elephants walking on a frozen Thames river. And we even have Mr Bennett apologising and publicly showing his appreciation of Kitty. Well, I think Jane Austen would be very happy with how you have trespassed into her world. (laughs) Thank you, Jan. (laughs) If you enjoyed Pride and Prejudice, you will be delighted in reading what may have happened to some of these very loved characters. But I've got to say, the language. And you write this Regency language so well. You know, there's uh, things like, the weather was clement, it could be surmised, somewhat abashed at the genuine applause afforded him. And I think my favourite... Lydia's letters mentioned dances and court parties and accounts of insalubrious japes among the officers 
always referred to as best of fun. <laughs> I don't know whether even pronounced in Salubus Japes correctly, but you have an idea that if Liddy was involved, it was hijinks. She had a zest for life, that was for sure. So now we do know what happened to Mary in the book. Do you think you might follow on Mary's uh, what happens to Mary? Not at this stage. I've done so much research um, as a as part of writing this book that I am writing another novel and it does have the smallest connection to one of the characters okay. in this book but it's not um it's not a, it's not um trying to piggyback on Jane Austen well if you enjoy Jane Austen I think you'll definitely enjoy this one Carrie Cablane author of What Kitty Did Next published by Red Door thank you thank you and can I just mention that um there are a couple of bookshops in Melbourne that have it because it's quite difficult sometimes to to get books into the into the shelves and I'm so grateful to those two. Which one? Who are they? Readings in Carlton and the Leaf Bookshop in Ashburton. Well done, you two. Indeed. Okay, thank you. Well, we're going from the rolling fields of the English countryside to the drought-ridden outback. Here is my interview with Chris Hammer and his novel Scrublands. The Australian landscape is deadly and quiet and isolated rural towns more active and frightening than one might realise. Such is the case in Chris Hammer's Scrublands. So, Chris, welcome to 3CR. Hi, David. Now, the landscape in this novel is overpowering. Martin Scarsden stops the car on the bridge leading into town, leaving the engine running. It's a single-lane bridge, no overtaking, no passing, built decades ago, the timber milled from local river red gums. It's slung across the floodplain, long and rambling, desiccated planks shrunken and rattling, bolts loose, spans bowed. Martin opens the car door and steps into the midday heat, ferocious and furnace dry. And you've got images later on of melting asphalt, the baking sun. But you've got an experience with this sort of rural life, haven't you? I travelled through the length and breadth of the Murray-Darling Basin uh, back at the height of the millennial drought back in the summer of 2008-2009. And that experience stayed with me, not just the landscape, but the people, um, the despair the hints of violence, the ever-present spectre of suicide, but also the resilience, the, the community spirit, the optimism despite what was happening with the weather. That stayed with me. And so when I came to write a fiction book, a, a crime novel indeed, that seemed to be the perfect setting for it. And the town you've got here, River's End, the end of the river, so to speak, but you've got the bronze statue in the middle of town and, and those sort of iconic images of the rural town, the, the wheat silos and things like that. Yeah, I think most Australians who travel you know, through the bush will recognise elements of the town. It's not based on any real town. It's based on a real area, the Western Riverina, out, out near Hay, you know, where it's dead flat and there's no trees. But the town itself is actually far too compact to be out there because... Towns out there tend to spread out across the plain. And the other thing you also pick up on, which you've got to pick up on in an Australian book, there is smoke now seeping in through the windows and doors, smoke from the scrubs, smoke from the veranda. Wood shutter bursts into flames. Snouch sprays water onto the window frames. Another shutter erupts, a cruel orange flaring. Snouch is on 
into one side room, then the other spraying water quickly before retreating. The room is starting to fill with smoke. The men move back towards the corridor. Martin, then Snitch, who soaks the kitchen side of the room, and finally Robbie, who closes it. The Australian bushfire. You've there got is to a bushfire in the book. There yeah. it is. But it's typically Australian, and it roars, it races. I'm a former journalist, and I have covered bushfires, so, so I guess that's coming partly from experience and partly from kind of the... Um, training you receive from rural fire brigade so you can cover bushfires as a journalist without getting yourself in too much strife but these are typical iconic australian images all of them the fire the bronze statue so here's the interesting thing though it appeals to australia but we've been very successful and have sold the book overseas the americans are really enthusiastic about it won't be published there until early next year even though it's not unexpected that there is some resonance for Australian readers. It obviously appeals to foreign readers as well. We can move on to the characters then, and I find these fascinating characters because a lot of them are psychologically damaged in a way or they behave in an inconsistent manner, shall we say, which is not inconsistent. Okay, let let me back it up a bit. It's a crime novel, and in a crime novel you need a good plot. Okay, so if you've got a lousy plot or people guess who the perpetrator was halfway through, it kind of spoils it. But as well as the plot, there's room for all sorts of other elements, some nice writing, the landscape, the setting, particularly the characters. And if you think of any crime book, typically there's a murder involved, often committed by a normal member of the otherwise normal member of the community. So if that's the plot. You've also got to explain the motivation. And so the motivation of why people do extreme things becomes a really interesting part in a crime book. So when I went into it, I saw the potential there. It was one of the things that attracted me to do a crime book. And what I wanted to do is not have cardboard cutout characters. I didn't want to have some goodies and some baddies. So I wanted the characters to be a bit more nuanced. Um, with elements of both, with some understandable motivations. And the other thing that I was keen to have, particularly with the major characters, is that they change during the book. So our protagonist, the person who leads us through the story, this damaged journalist, Martin Skarsden, he's a different man at the end of the book than he is at the beginning of the book. But also the, the other characters in the story, normally with a crime fiction, you can sort of pick them in a stereotypical mode and therefore you peg them in a particular vein. You can't do this with this one, which adds to that dimension of, well, are they a suspect or not? Because they are nuanced, which I think is a better word than contradiction, because people often do contradictory things. And all of a sudden, you, as a reader, you're shaken out of that sort of laziness of thinking, well, that person fits into that category. Uh, the scene is this country town. Uh, there's a young priest, Byron Swift is his name. He's out milling around outside the church before the church service. He's laughing, he's joking, everything seems normal. He goes inside the church to put on his vestments, comes out a few minutes later you know, in his robes with his crucifix round his neck, bearing a high-powered rifle and then proceeds to, in a calculated manner, shoot dead five of his congregation. So the story proper starts a year later when Martin, our protagonist, arrives in the town and he's got a simple assignment. The assignment is to just report on how the town 
is coping a year on from this terrible tragedy that has um, befallen the town. But one of the reasons, I think, getting back to your original question, you know, with the Royal Commission into Institutional Sexual Abuse and that running along, I was thinking that some people may well jump to a conclusion of why a priest has done this. It's setting up expectations, but then maybe not fulfilling them. You sort of tease, shall we say, the reader, because there is that sort of trope behind it, that expectation, assumptions being made, and then all of a sudden you shift it and you think, well, hang on a minute, the person's acting inconsistently. My original uh, impression has to change and alter, and therefore that whole notion of who the guilty party is, who's telling the truth, is sort of more textured. We follow this journalist, Martin Scarsden, around, and he's he's been damaged from his experience as a foreign correspondent. So there's nothing really unusual in having a damaged hero. What I do find at times irritating, well, not irritating, is that heroes are inevitably astute. They get things right. They pick up on things that other people don't. Martin gets things wrong, and at times he gets them spectacularly because wrong. Because he's a journalist. Now, here we go. Yep. Because your background's journalism, and that comes yep. through. Because what we've got is misreporting. But, but we understand why there's misreporting. It's yes. not someone just callously making things up. But it fits into this notion of who's, who the guilty party is, because the misreporting occurs because people have been saying the wrong things. But often with good reason. But a journalist then has to wade through all of this and pull it apart. There's previous reporting which builds a sort of impression which is then added to but based on the wrong assumption. And so you've got all of this texturing which again adds to this notion of we've got an inconsistency here. Who is the guilty party? It keeps adding and adding and adding. We aim for clarification, but we're it's teasing us. It does, fortunately, it all does come together at <laughs> the does. end of the book. Let's go back a bit. I mean, we talked about damaged characters. You've got Codger, typical Australian name, but, I mean, he's sitting in a, a, a shed uh, naked because that's the way to escape the heat. But he's had traumatic experience. Codger seems to be quite a favourite with many of the readers. Amongst all these strange characters, he is a very sympathetic character. One of the ones I found fascinating was Jamie Landers. Now, he's the son of someone who was killed. So to explain to the readers, Jamie's one of the um, younger people in the story. What he represents in many ways is just how terrible it is to be a young person isolated in this town, away from... Even even the apparent, the relative glamour, if you like, of the town that's down on the Murray River and how isolated and how much pressure there is on young people, not just from the environment, not just from the, the, the dying town, but also the intergenerational grief that can bear down on some of the younger people in the story. You've told us about the plot. We've heard about Martin. So now we get into issues behind this plot because Martin going into the town a year later and it's more than just the killings that are exposed. We find an escalation of the intrigue that is within the town from a variety of characters and situations. Now I'm just wondering how many of these we can start raising because the moment we do we start to give away 
plot lines and, and things like this. So let, let me explain that to your listeners like this. I had this idea that then maybe there'd be like a second crime and they'd start, the aftermath of the two crimes would start interfering. So when, as Martin discovers something new, he doesn't know what it's actually relating to. And the read, Martin and the reader, of course, is suspecting that these crimes are interlinked, but you don't know, which is, what, again, one of the reasons to set it in a very small country town, because inevitably you're going to be thinking maybe they're linked. Where, say, if you had two major crimes, you know, one committed in the Melbourne CBD and one in the, in the outskirts, there'd be no reason for you to su- suspect that the crimes were linked, but because this is such a small town under such pressure... And this is how the story develops. It's as the layers of the town are peeled away, Martin is discovering more and more and more, but he he just doesn't know what it relates to. But the confabulation leads to misreporting, exactly. which adds to confusion uh, that gets generated in some cases by the press or people telling lies or people having another agenda, people worried about their own profile. You've got all of these things operating simultaneously. It's certainly safe to say that the plot lines in the book are reasonably complex. But the psychology of the priest is created, generated by his background, which we can't give away, but it makes for compelling uh, reading and you wonder then how individuals are psychologically broken, developed... Well, I think that's perhaps for some readers part of the appeal of the book, that by the end of the, of the book you, are, you do understand why he's done it, um, but then it's up to the reader to ponder if that is indeed in any way justified. So there is room also, if readers want to, to sort of think about the characters and think about some of those issues that you've raised. Well, they're real characters and in a real Australian setting, some of which the suburban Australian wouldn't know much of, but you just have to go into a country town and you see the bronze soldier in the middle of the square. You can feel the baking heat and if anyone's ever driven an un-air-conditioned car, they know exactly what we mean. The book is Scrublands, the author Chris Hammer, and it is an Allen and Unwin publication. So thanks for coming in today, Chris. Thank you so much, David. 